Hey, welcome back to the podcast. You didn't miss us too much, did you? <laughs> I missed us. Oh, I see you almost on a daily basis because we do the morning show on Power Ninety Eight yeah. Love Songs. So I don't miss you that much. Basket, no, you cannot be nice to me, is it? Uh, it's kind of our uh, thing. Anyway, it's Mr. Yeah. Young and Jackie. Thank you very much for joining us wherever you are in Singapore or in the world, in fact. And today we have somebody very special here to talk with us. In fact, we got him on the Zoom chat uh, mm-hmm. right before World Blood Donor Day, which was 14th of June. If you're listening to this podcast, though, it comes out after that, right? But the importance of donating blood, there's no specific date. We need it all year round, as you will find That's out right. in just a bit. Yeah, and who better to talk to than this guy, Mr. Benjamin Williams, Secretary General of Singapore Red Cross. And not just about blood donation, but also about the humanitarian work um, they've mm. done, he's been yeah. involved with. It was quite the eye-opener. So without further ado, here we go. This is Mr. Benjamin William. SecGen and CEO of the Singapore Red Cross. Oh, for the love of life. Uh, Mr. William, thank you so much for being on this Zoom chat to chat with us. Uh, thanks for giving me this opportunity to join you. Yeah. Not at all. It's our pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Of course, uh, Mr. Benjamin William, Secretary General and CEO of the Singapore Red Cross. Now, tell us a little bit about the impact of COVID-19 as far as blood collection is concerned here in Singapore. Blood collection is an important uh, task. It's a task that needs to go on all the time because we need to have sufficient supply of blood to meet the transfusion needs in Singapore. Unfortunately, even in a normal year, during festive seasons, blood collection falls because, you know, being Singaporeans, we we don't like to go to the hospital or things connected to the hospital <laughs> yeah. during a festive season. So unfortunately, COVID-19 came soon after Chinese New Year. So Chinese New Year is normally also a low season. And then COVID-19 happened and people were quite uh, a bit more cautious about going out to public places or places where they thought there will be uh, others congregating. Mm-hmm. So that took a toll on blood collection. And when circuit breaker happened, blood collection for that first few days fell to about 25% of what we would normally collect. Wow, okay. Then it picked up. So I would say that over the overall circuit breaker period, uh, we were trending at around 70% of what we would normally collect, right? Wow. So the impact of COVID-19, the fears arising from COVID-19, the caution that people take, have had an impact on our blood collection Uh, targets. We are in phase one already, right? And I mean, we've talked about previously on the show the various precautions that, you know, these blood Mm. collection centers have in place. Maybe we can quickly mention some of those as well so as to allay any fears that anybody might have if they want to come forward and donate blood. So first of all, we take a lot of precautions to ensure the safety of the blood donor. Mm. Uh, We ensure proper safe distancing. And we go actually over and above uh, what is even in the norm in the public. We have taken guidance from the Ministry of Health. Uh, we adhere to that very strongly. Now, what we have also done over this uh, period is to encourage people to make appointments for their blood donation. Mm. So when they make appointments, we are also able to face out the donors coming in to ensure that there is no bunching of donors. So I think these are some of the measures that we have taken to ensure that your blood donation journey during this period will be a very safe one. 
Right. And uh, right. perhaps you'll be even safer there than anywhere else, like <laughs> going to a supermarket or somewhere else. Yeah. Right, right. That's reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the continued need for blood. You know, people might okay. think, oh, donate blood is like a one-time thing, but it, it really isn't, right? Yes. So in uh, most instances, you know, blood can keep for about a week or so to mm-hmm. 10 days. Every year, about 30,000 people need a blood transfusion. Every day, we use about 400 bags of blood. Wow. So you can see that the demand is consistent. Mm-hmm. Now, during the circuit breaker period, because of the challenges of blood collection, hospitals and all that had delayed some of the non-essential operations. Mm. But there's some misunderstanding that, or to the public, you know, people think that the main demand for blood is when someone suffers an accident or has a surgery and they need blood transfusion. Right. But what people don't realize is that actually there are people with medical conditions mm. that require regular blood transfusions. Mm-hmm. So if you are a thalassemia patient, you may require a blood transfusion every two to four weeks. Mm-hmm. People who are suffering from leukemia and are undergoing treatment often require regular blood transfusion during their treatment. Mm-hmm. So these actually are consistent. They are there whether there's an accident, whether there are uh, surgeries going on. So uh, all these add up and over the year, we use about 120,000 units of blood and we need a constant supply. You can't take blood and, you know, keep it away and use it for years and years. You know, (laughs) you can have a small portion that you freeze and you keep for longer term use, but even that has a limitation. Now, every time there is a call that goes out, you know, when the blood stocks get a little bit low and calls go out, we see people, you know, come forward to donate blood. I mean, what do you want to say to those who continually come back and, you know, they are, you know, huge supporters of the Red Cross? You, you are right. You know, when, when there's a shout out and mm. uh, we get tremendous response. But we want to thank all the blood donors who have turned up. You know, you, you are such a great bunch. I mean, you can't overemphasize it. You are actually directly keeping someone alive. There's no other way of putting it, you know. I mean... Yeah. You may donate money, but it may be to, you know, help someone get along and things like that. But when you donate blood, you are actually a lifesaver. There's no other way of putting it. So I want to encourage those of you who have been coming forward to continue to come forward. Uh, It was very encouraging Mm -hmm. that the stocks have gone up because you all have stepped up. But I want to emphasize that, you know, today and over the last few years, fairly consistent. The whole population of Singapore Mm. is dependent yearly on 1.8% of the population donating blood. Only 1.8%? Yeah. Yeah. So on an annual basis, uh, the number of blood donors is about 1.8%. So actually the message I want to put out there is that for us, we should see blood donation as a priority. It's a national priority. We cannot afford to have uh, not in my own backyard right. attitude towards yeah. blood donation. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I think we are in a sense, the victim of our own success. Mm-hmm. In in Singapore, when you need blood or your loved one needs blood, it is unlikely that a hospital will say, no, sorry, we don't have blood. Go and look for someone who can donate. Right. I don't think we have come across that situation in 10 years. Sometimes our stocks have gone down, mm-hmm. but there's always blood. And therefore, people think that blood is always available. Mm. You know? Mm. Yeah. And if you don't mind, I like to tell this story. I lived in Laos for many years. Uh, the person who worked for me as a driver, mm. every month he would have to go around looking for relatives to donate blood because his daughter would require blood transfusion every month she had a, a period. 
and he was oh dear yeah he had to personally go around to collect the blood wow. and then take it to the hospital so that they can transfuse blood to his daughter mm -hmm. so we we are in a good place but we must make sure that we all see it as our responsibility to ensure that singapore always have an adequate safe supply of blood for uh, our blood transfusion needs first of all for those of you who donate you're great you're you're superheroes you're lifesavers and for those of you who have not yet donated you can be a lifesaver <laughs> and i hope all of us take it as a national priority is there anything you want to say to those who are thinking about it but may have some you know lingering thoughts yeah. or any fears let's allay those yeah. fears one of the great uh, fears that i think singaporeans have is needles <laughs> uh, i was going to say is the needle isn't it <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. people say, oh, no, it's going to be a painful experience. Uh, I, I want to assure all potential blood donors mm -hmm. that actually we have mitigated it to a tremendous extent. I mean, uh, with the anesthetic that is provided and all that, you hardly feel the pain in Singapore when you go for blood transfusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think I want to put your mind at ease. It can be a pleasant experience. It need not be a painful experience. Mm -hmm. There are other people who fear that, oh, you know, so much blood is going out of my body. Is it good for my body? Mm. At any one blood transfusion, the amount of blood that is taken from your body is about 10% of what you have in your body. Right. And the body for any healthy body will replace it within three to four weeks mm. completely. And you are normally able to go about your normal duties, uh, your normal activities within a day. Right. It doesn't really have a permanent impact on your body. What I would say is that for those of you who are thinking of donating blood, you know, you live a healthy lifestyle, eat well, eat food that has higher content of iron mm. so that your iron levels are high and you're able to donate blood. Just do what a healthy person would do and you would be able to donate blood in a very safe manner. And the, I want to emphasize that in Singapore, we take very serious view of the safety of the blood donor and the blood recipient. And sometimes blood donors have said, oh, you know, why do you have all these strict restrictions, you know? But actually it is for the safety of the blood donor. Because when you go to donate blood, we will check your level of blood. Sorry. Right, I was about to ask you if, like I've never donated blood before, I wouldn't know if, oh, can take my blood or not? Am I okay to donate, you know? So there are tests that will be done, right? Yes. Mm. So your blood level will be checked. If you do not meet the minimum criteria, we will not take your blood. Mm -hmm. We will normally actually encourage you to go back uh, if you are near the borderline or, you know, to, to go and eat the proper foods. For those people that we find are really way below the borderline, we may encourage them mm -hmm. to uh, take iron supplements before their next try. And sometimes because of your trip to the blood bank, you realize that you are iron deficient. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, you know, it can be a benefit for you as well, yeah. So, okay, beyond blood donations then, what else does the Singapore Red Cross do? Because, okay, we always hear about Singapore Red Cross, we know, okay, humanitarian stuff, blood donations, but what else does the Singapore Red Cross do? Okay, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Mm. I love that. For sure, for sure. <laughs> so when people hear about the Singapore Red Cross, sometimes they have some misconceptions, right? Mm. So first of all, let me assure every of your listener that Singapore Red Cross is a local organization. Mm. We are not a foreign organization with a Singapore branch. We are a local organization started about 71 years ago. Mm -hmm. Very much homegrown organization. Number two, everyone thinks that we only do blood donation and international work. 
Yeah. But that's only a small part of what we do. So mm. very quickly for your listeners, if you I want to encapsulate Singapore Red Cross work, I will put it in two broad categories. The first category I call our national duties and the second I call our services. For our national duties, there are two elements. One is first aid mm. and blood donation. So we encourage every Singaporean to know first aid. Mm-hmm. In fact, we are one of the few organizations which continue to promote this idea of a first aider in every home in Singapore. Right. Today with SG Secure and uh, other movements, we are more aware of this, but Singapore Red Cross has been pushing this for the last 50 years or so. Mm. And we want to encourage people to do first aid. Our second national duty, as I say, would be blood donation. Mm-hmm. So put together, we are auxiliary to the government, especially in emergencies where we work with the health authorities, uh, for example, in first aid to provide volunteers who can take care of the walking wounded mm-hmm. while the health authorities take care of the more seriously injured. Right. And likewise, we will mobilize all our resources to increase blood donation if there's a need for blood donation. So that is our national duties. In terms of our services, the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement around the world stands for the most vulnerable. Yep. But the most vulnerable differs from country to country. So in Singapore, we ask ourselves, who are the most vulnerable? Mm-hmm. And we decided that the most vulnerable are the disabled and the elderly. Mm-hmm. And this was quite a few years ago, even before the emphasis on the aging population. Yeah. So our services are revolved around this. We have a home for the most severely disabled. Mm-hmm. We serve about 100 people in this home. And I think it is the only home in Singapore that will take care of this category of disabled person. Mm-hmm. They are both physically and mentally uh, disabled. Mm-hmm. Then we have many programs for the elderly, filling the gaps that exist. So number one is transport service. Mm-hmm. Now the transport service, you know, today for dialysis, for therapy, for medical, a lot of it is subsidized. Correct. But often if you're in a wheelchair, Transportation can be as much as eighty to ninety dollars for a return trip. Right. Yeah. So we provide this service almost free, mm-hmm. very low, and if someone can't afford it, we'll still take them. So we have this transport. We also train our volunteers to provide escort mm. because some people are living alone and they can't go for their medical appointments. So our volunteers yeah. actually come alongside to bring them to their medical appointments together with the transporter if they need. Right. We also have befriending service. One of the big challenges as the population ages yeah. is elderly persons living alone. Mm. Today we have yeah. about 50,000 of them living alone. The number will go up to about 90,000. And we are talking about those living alone, not even couples, right. old couples who are living alone. Like literally one person Solo. in one flat yeah. by themselves. Yeah. So if you add the couples, it will be even bigger number. Right. So we yeah. actually do a lot of befriending service, our volunteers visiting them on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And this has come very important during the COVID-19. So our volunteers have actually been able to like help them do shopping. Hmm. Uh, In fact, in one or two cases, we even help them to move house because they they had to move house uh, during this period. So uh, these are some of the services. Then our second part of our services is our international work. Mm. So our international work is mainly responding to disasters after the disaster, Mm -hmm. helping communities that are affected. A lot of people think that's our main work, but out of our 180 staff or so, Mm -hmm. we have five staff dealing with our international work. So our primary work is still our local work. How did you actually get into humanitarian work? (laughs) So I like to say that I'm actually an accidental humanitarian. (laughs) I, I worked in the civil service for many years. Mm -hmm. For 30 years, I was in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. 
uh, served in a number of countries. I had just returned from my posting in Laos as ambassador there when uh, the Red Cross reached out to me to see whether I could be seconded for a couple of years mm. to help in uh, revamping and you know reorganizing the missionary. Right, uh, right. So I agreed. It was supposed to be a two-year journey after which I go back to the foreign ministry. Mm. Uh-huh. I stepped in. I didn't realize a lot of the things that I learned in the Red Cross in the first one or two years, mm. I didn't realize existed in Singapore. Mm. Uh, right, okay. I mean, you know, we are always under the impression that Singapore is such an affluent society. Yeah. And yeah. nobody starves, uh, you know, everybody gets help if they need help. Mm-hmm. But there are groups of people and there are a lot of gaps that exist. And I felt that, you know, it was so meaningful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I decided to stay on. <laughs> <laughs> then it turned to six years and now yeah. it's uh, almost nine years. Wow. It's funny how uh, things turn out sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say it's very fulfilling for you as a person? It's tremendously fulfilling. I know I, I was just thinking about it a few days ago and I, and I said, in my foreign ministry work, mm-hmm. I lived in four countries. I lived through many uh, challenging situations like Pinatubo, the Baguio mm. earthquake, Block Contemplacion, all of which I was involved in personally. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah. I, I served four years in the US uh, mm-hmm. dealing with Congress and all that. But I must say that the nine years that I've spent in the Singapore Red Cross are things that have made tremendous impact on my life, uh, things mm. that I would, I would say have made a difference in the lives of others uh, more than the 30 years that I spent in the foreign ministry. I, I'm not so sure, you know, <laughs> in real terms, but that's how I feel, you know, right. yeah. yeah. When so, you talk uh, about those gaps at home and filling in those gaps, can you elaborate on what you mean by that and how we can improve? Okay, so some of the things that at that interview, I think quite a few years ago, I mentioned. Mm. Uh, one is the elderly. Mm. So, you know, we talk about the growing uh, elderly population. By 2030 or so, about one in four to one in five Singaporeans will be above the age of 65. Mm-hmm. So that everybody knows. Yeah. But as you go in, you realize the number of people living alone. Mm. And many of them have no relatives with them. Yeah. And That's scary. Yeah. They may have access to some services because, you know, the medical is subsidized and all that. Yeah. But the soft touch isn't there. Correct. You know, I, I remember yeah. one incident where I visited a home. It was a brand new home. Mm. And some of the elderly, uh, the, the seniors had moved in and I was talking to some of them. And they told me that their living condition now was 100 times better than what they came from. You know, some of them were living in like rooms that were infested and all that. Mm. But they say they still want to go back. Ayoh. And I asked them why. Why? Uh-huh. <laughs> and they say what they miss is the company, mm. the interaction. Right. Yeah. The touch of the young people talking to them. Okay, yeah. right? I see. So that is why I, I strongly supported when Singapore Red Cross went into befriending. Yeah, you know, yeah, training yeah. our volunteers in psychosocial support and first aid yeah. and getting them linked to the families. Yeah. So our volunteers are not touch and go. The same volunteer keeps going back to the same families, the same individual. And that's why during COVID-19, they understood what are the personal things they needed. Mm. Some needed diapers, some needed this thing, you know, and yeah. Everybody was giving them Milo and uh, right. Maggie Mee, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they, yeah. everyone has a specific different yes. need. 
Yeah. And yes. also talking about the COVID situation, I mean, I guess we take it for granted. Oh, we can easily hop on a Zoom or a Skype call, yeah. video conferencing. Yeah. To us, technology like this is is quite everyday. But I guess maybe yeah. to some of these folks, the older folks, they don't know how to use technology like this. It's not part yeah. of their daily you know, routine, right? Correct, correct. And, and some of them don't have the equipment. I mean, mm-hmm. their yeah. phones are very basic phones. I mean, mm. they're struggling with their lives. Yeah. Uh, in fact, one of the new initiatives, which I just discussed with my staff before coming on with you is uh, this digital uh, ambassadors mm. so we are going to launch a program as soon as we can do a bit more visiting mm-hmm. to try and get some of our uh, seniors more knowledgeable on the digital like zoom and yeah. facebook and things like that so they can interact so that is one of the gap the other gap i just mentioned you know we realized that actually there were a lot of people who are missing their say their diabetes uh, appointment and things like that because they didn't have transportation or the transportation was too expensive. Mm. Yes, you know, at one time, London Cap, you remember we had London Cap, they, mm-hmm. they provided free service. Yes. But it still meant you had to come down to the roadside. Correct. And many yes, of our yes. clients can't. Mm. Yeah. In mm. fact, in one or two cases, my responder together with the driver has to carry oh. the person down one or two floors right. in order to get to the lift level. Yeah, yeah, wow. Well, in order to just get to the lift level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, wow. yeah, so either they are alone and they can't come down on the curb themselves mm-hmm. or they live with an equally elderly person and challenged person. That, yeah. So mm-hmm. that was another big gap. So we decided to like defocus on our ambulance service mm-hmm. because there are so many ambulance providers and we move most of our vehicle to medical transporters. So that's another gap that we have built on. Mm. One of the other things that we have done for the elderly living alone, which I, I think is a gap, is monitoring. Mm. You know, often uh, you hear this case of someone dying at home mm-hmm. and you know his body is only, his or her body is only discovered five days, six days, yeah, seven days, days after. later yeah. when the yeah. thing starts to smell. Mm-hmm. So we have started a program called Home Plus, which is home monitoring. Mm. There are one or two other organizations have started it, but ours is unique in the sense that our response is 24 hours. Oh, okay. Monitoring oh. is 24 hours. Our volunteers actually are on standby 24 hours to respond. Right. So oh, they will right. go and check these homes uh, on a regular basis or how does that work? Okay. So our volunteers also build our relationship by calling them and uh, talking to them, even if there are no emergencies. Right. Like right. checking in with them. Lah. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Mm. But more importantly or more uniquely, we have motion detectors in their home. Oh, okay. So we monitor the motion 24 hours. We don't want to use video, right? Mm. Because it's invasion of privacy. Yeah. Yeah. After a while, you know a person's habit. If a person is in bed, say from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. normally, we would not panic if he doesn't move. Right, right. But if we see that at 9 a.m., at 10 a.m., he's still not awake, Mm. our volunteer will either call first and then if no response, we will turn up or if we respond and we realize that he's having trouble, we'll call the ambulance so that the ambulance can go while we also make our way there. Right. Or if we see a person is stuck in the kitchen for more than his normal 20 or 30 minutes, we know mm. that they either have fallen and uh, yeah. think so can get up, yeah. uh, So it's, mm. uh, that's what we do. So we, we have launched that and uh, the good thing is that what we have been able to do is to be able to respond 24 hours. Our volunteers have actually stepped up to the plate. Wonderful. You know, one of the problems that other organizations had was 
office hours you could do it yeah. but you see murphy's law is such that when something happens it happens after office hours <laughs> yeah, correct exactly, yeah yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah for sure yeah. uh we've got to ask is there a most uh memorable project that you've worked on and and why did it stand out so i i, I think there are few i mean i this home plus i'm very happy with it and the uh transporter so that was one i was going to mention but mm. i mentioned it already the second i i would like to say I mean, there are many, la, as, <laughs> yeah. as I said earlier. Sure, but yeah. The other one which I think in the long term will make a significant difference is that a couple of years ago, I really encouraged our Red Cross youth, mm-hmm. which already has units in primary schools from primary four, mm. to start a Red Cross junior. Oh. A Red Cross junior as in kindergarten. <laughs> Even younger. <laughs> yeah. So we have now started in a big way with Red Cross junior. Uh-huh. We have a few thousand uh, children mm-hmm. in Red Cross Junior. And I tell you the rationale and why I think when I look back on my Red Cross journey, I might think that this is one of the significant ones. Mm. Because today, young people are challenged. Right. And if you don't make an effort to pass on the humanitarian message at a young age, you will lose them. It will mm. be that much more difficult to get them back. Correct. And you know, once you go into primary school, even secondary school, so many things come in. Yeah, so that yeah. is why we hope to spread the message of first aid, the importance of blood donation, the importance of being uh, kind to the seniors, mm. being able to interact with the seniors at a very young age. Yeah. And we see this coming on board. And of course, in kindergarten, unlike primary school, secondary school, parents get involved. Mm. Yes. Right, right. So hopefully yeah. we can also pass on the message to yeah. parents. We want to encourage more kindergartens to mm. think about humanitarian values. The second I will mention to you mm. is an international project that I was involved in. We sometimes we support the building of houses. Right. So we worked with a partner in uh, Philippines mm-hmm. after a major flood a few years ago to build houses for slum dwellers who had lost everything in the flood. Right. You know, right. they didn't have bank accounts, so everything is gone. Wow. So yeah. we build these flats. Each flat is only about 20 to 25 square meters. Wow. So I went there for when the flats were completed to handover in the handover ceremony and the amount of joy I saw in their face having this 20 meter thing, you know, and as yeah. I walked around and I interacted with them, it was so amazing. But what struck me was at the sort of ceremony where everyone has gathered. Our mm-hmm. partner made a speech and he said, well, you know, we are very thankful to Singapore Cross for contributing this and all that. And then he made this remark. He said, I know for many of you, this is the first time in your life. And there were some there for 50, 60 years old. First time in a life, you have a postal address. Oh, wow. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that stuck in my <laughs> mind. I will never forget it. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's something we take for granted, for granted. huh? Yeah. So I, I, yeah. That was very powerful, like, you know, when yeah. he said that. Did you, like, shed a tear? I, yeah, I did. And I am now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just thinking about no, it, right? Very, wow. Very moving, yeah. Mm. No, I think in Singapore, we take too many things for granted. Mm. So let's say I want to help. I want to make a difference, but I don't know where to start. What what's the first step if you would recommend somebody if they want to help others you know do humanitarian work or whatever it is what's the first step I think the first step is a mindset shift mm. I think it is a real problem mm-hmm. uh this issue uh, not in my own backyard mm. or it's not my business right. Right? right I think we really need to encourage people to and I think covid-19 has sort of woken us up we need to really uh, shift our minds to say that the wellness of others uh, is also my business and when i get prepared to ensure the wellness of others 
one day it will also contribute to my own wellness. So I think that is important. I think that's the first step. Mm-hmm. We need to be prepared for community resilience. Number mm-hmm. two, you see, we are so complacent, almost sometimes arrogant, mm-hmm. that we have everything under control. Right. And then suddenly you have something like COVID nineteen that tells you that hey, you got nothing under control. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think whether first aid, blood donation, paying a visit to your elderly neighbor yeah. to say how you're getting on. Mm-hmm. I think things like this will build community resilience, mm-hmm. and I think it's very important uh, that we all commit to building community resilience. Now, you may—I take blood donation. You may be a person who cannot donate blood, whether you're anemic or you're too old. But that doesn't mean you cannot be a supporter of the blood donation program. I mean, you can encourage right. people. You can uh, help in your community to spread the news. When there's a blood mobile, you can volunteer to go and do triaging to show that you feel that blood donation is also your responsibility. But I'm just using blood donation as a responsibility. Then I think the next step, right, is where you have time. I know Singaporeans are very busy. Mm-hmm. If you can volunteer, mm. you can start small, yeah. volunteer in small things, because I think it's very important. Because when you volunteer, you realize that many people are hundred times worse off than you. I think a lot of us spend so much time wondering about, oh, you know, this thing in my life is bugging me. That thing in my life is bugging me. When you look at it from, like, you look at, you know, what other people are going through, man, all of a sudden your worries don't seem so crazy anymore, right? Exactly. And the thing is, you know, we all say, oh, busy, busy, busy. But if you want to make time, you will make the time. I think busy, busy, busy is just an excuse for some people. I mean, uh, you know, especially if your parents of young children, I mean, 11, 12 years old, uh, volunteer together with them, you know, maybe one weekend uh, a month or one weekend in two months, you know, Mm. just to, to start the journey, just to get them to realize that there are other people out there who, you know, need their help, need their support. I think so that that will be the next step, which is taking a more positive step. Then, then you, if you're able to, you know, donate blood, make yeah. it a family affair. You know, all of you go together, even if your yeah. children can't donate, let them yeah. see you donating blood. You know, then after that, go out for a meal and celebrate. Yeah. You know, it'd be so great if we if we had families doing that, you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, after COVID-19. Cultivate the mindset from young. Yeah. That's so important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Take your first aid skills and all that. I know some people say, no, like, I will never go and give first aid to someone who's collapsed on the road because I'm too scared. Right. But you never know. You you may be in your house and your your grandfather, grandmother, or your, your father may collapse and you may be the only one there, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah so exactly. Take it seriously, yeah. I feel like I've learned so much here today and uh, I'm sure we could pick your brain a lot more for hours <laughs> and hours on end. For sure. Yeah, I'm sure there must be a lot of stories. But thank you so much, sir, for the time uh, here today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I really enjoyed myself. (laughs) Anytime, please feel free to reach out. There you have it. Be sure to go and make that appointment and donate some blood. I can't believe in a 1.8% of the entire population donates blood. 1.8. That supports (laughs) the whole of Singapore. Are you kidding me? I'm so glad we had a conversation with this guy because I feel more enlightened. I feel more knowledgeable now about blood donation. Well, and hopefully after listening to Mr. William, you feel a little bit more inclined to do something. Even if it's donating blood yourself or volunteering, there's some some way, shape or form you can help. Absolutely. So there you go, redcross.sg. Go check out the website, make that appointment, donate some blood. In the meantime though, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Hey, if you
you enjoy what we do, why don't you drop us a subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Be it Spotify or Apple Podcasts, just drop us a like and we'd love to have you. Absolutely. Hey, let your friends know about us as well. Yeah. Share it. You know how it is. It really helps us when you do that. And of course, if you'd like to follow us on Facebook, it's Mr. Young and Jackie. That's where you can see all our other shenanigans as well. <laughs> and trust me, there's a lot of shenanigans. <laughs> In the meantime, stay safe and wash your hands. <laughs> oh, for the love of life. <laughs>